Welcome to the History After Dark podcast. Not for the faint-hearted, History After Dark gets spicy, digs in the dirt and talks about topics not suitable for the dinner table. All with a big dose of humour and the odd swear word or two. So put in your headphones and enjoy this alternative look at history with your hosts. Philippa Brule from British History. Dr Cat from Reading the Past. And Catherine Brooks, the Tudor Tracker. Has anyone seen the film The Favourite? Because I am definitely the odd one out here. I've been meaning to watch this since the dawn of time and everyone else has seen it and I'm feeling very, very left out. But kind of inspired by that, we are today talking about Sarah Churchill, Duchess of Marlborough. Now, we've touched in our rooms before about favourites of kings. So we had uh, Hugh Dispenser and um, Piers Gaveston, for example, and they are very well known in the sort of the, the history world and kings and queens of England as people who were a bit too favourite of the chosen monarch. And there was definitely a little bit of a few things suspect going on here, there and everywhere. And those relationships, of course, aren't popular. If you're going to have someone come along who's going to be treated blatantly much more favourably, very possibly to um, the disregard of either the immediate people around them or a much wider circle, it's going to go down like a lead balloon. So sometimes these things can start out quite well or work out quite well. But ultimately, in the end, wherever there is a, a distribution of power to be won or lost, there is always going to be friction. And we very much see a lot of this with Sarah Churchill herself. Now, she was a very powerful lady um, at many points in her career, but she certainly was able to, I feel it's fair to say, dominate the will and the actions of Queen Anne, the last Stuart monarch. So, ladies, which one of you would like to come in first and tell everybody a little bit more about Sarah Churchill? Here comes Philippa. Hi everyone, good evening. Um, yeah, so I was actually down at Blenheim Palace last week recording a podcast about Sarah Churchill with um, the social historian there, uh, Antonia Keeney. So I'm feeling a little bit proud of myself that maybe I can I can add quite a bit to this conversation. Um, and we're at the the reason actually that we're we've picked Sarah today is it is the anniversary of her death. Um, she lived to the ripe old age of 84. Um, uh, uh, dying at St James's Palace I think she outlived her husband the Duke of Marlborough by 20 years and and Queen Anne by got to be getting on I can't remember 40 years something rid ridiculous like that so Sarah Churchill was um she was actually uh, a childhood friend I suppose of um of Anne when she was Princess Anne so she came into Queen Anne's service long time before Anne was actually queen and she was about five years older than Anne and she took on immediately this sort of older sister role which um, I think as we go on to talk about their relationship we'll see never left you know this was kind of the this was seems to be set for life um, but Sarah is is famous for her relationship with Anne she's also obviously famous for being the Duchess of Marlborough the first Duchess of Marlborough because her husband John Churchill um he he was the head of the Allied forces um for uh, for, for Britain and the you know, Allied forces during the the wars of the Spanish succession and he had a victory at Blenheim and Anne awarded him the Royal Park of Woodstock and uh 
I think it was £240,000, something in that region, to build himself a palace and name it Blenheim Palace in um, recognition of this, this major victory. Um, and so, of course, Sarah is um, has her seat at Blenheim Palace. She actually finishes Blenheim Palace after John dies um, in memory of him, really, um, because she didn't like it. She hated Blenheim. But he loved it, so she finished it off in his in his name. Um, but I think the the, the title Duke and Duchess had been given to uh, to the Churchills before that. It was another sort of um, thing that Anne put uh, gave them. When I read about Anne and Sarah, it just seems like Anne was just constantly trying to please Sarah, give her something you know, in it trying to get some kind of gratitude back that doesn't, didn't generally come. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a very interesting story. I'm sure we'll get onto the film as well, which I have, I will admit then Catherine, I only watched today, but it's fresh in my mind now. Um, and I have a lot to say about it if we do get on, get onto that. Um, but yeah, very interesting relationship. Definitely. I wouldn't even go so far as to say it was parent child in a, that's sort of like a psychology way of looking at it but definitely this older sister younger sister seems to run through and of course Sarah gets replaced by her cousin Abigail Masham as a favorite uh the favorite if you like as it as it's termed in the um in the film but I'll I'll, I'll hand over to Kat now because um I'm sure there's lots that she would like to say about Sarah as well yeah I mean I think there's an element of Sarah and her relationship with Anne, that she does come across as being incredibly controlling. Um, she has these fits of pique. And yeah, you're completely right. She's Sarah's just constantly trying to uh, control Anne and the government. And Anne is constantly trying to pacify her friend, sister, possibly lover. And I think there's an a reason behind it, if we want to give Sarah her due, she has grown up with Anne in close quarters. And the famous thing they say about the Stuarts, how they differ from the Tudors, is that the Tudors spend a lot of time educating their girls. The Stuarts are the exact opposite. Mary and Anne had none of the benefits of their Tudor cousins in terms of education. I think that Anne actually had quite a lot of nows. She was desperate to understand. There is something about her that I find particularly astute, and that is that she is incredibly suspicious of the parliamentary party system. Her logic being, why should I have to pick between a Whig or a Tory? I want the right person for the job. And if we allow people to form parties, then they're going to work in party interest rather than national interest. And my goodness, it's it's like it's like the Oracle, isn't it? It's it's somebody who is I can't remember the person in, in mythology who is cursed to see the future, but nobody believes her. And that for me is Queen Anne. But Sarah wasn't Sarah was wonderfully educated. So here we have a woman who is the confidant and friend of this young woman who becomes queen, who Sarah probably recognises is less educated than her, has not had her benefits. And so I can perhaps understand why she thinks, well, this woman needs a firm hand on the tiller. And she was intervening in Anne's relationships and stirring division, I believe, 
between Anne and her brother-in-law, William. Um, she was essentially telling Anne, yes, yeah, you've been treated terribly. You should, you should kick off. Um, because, of course, and that draws her close to Sarah. But Sarah wasn't just uh, controlling and aggressive and tantrumy with the Queen. I think that one of the most incredible stories about Sarah Churchill that, to me, points to how she probably acted in private with the Queen is a story of how she behaved with her husband. So he is really flying high in government. He, he's reaching the, the apex and the zenith, and he makes a political compromise that Sarah doesn't like. So her response to him teaming up with Lawrence Hyde was to have a tantrum so severe that she stood in front of him and cut her hair off. He is supposed to have loved her hair. So she cut her hair off in front of him and threw it on the floor and flounced out. Apparently her husband didn't say anything, but she later found in his bureau that he'd taken the hair and just tied it up with ribbons to preserve it. But that is straight up completely manipulative behaviour. And if that's the way she behaves with her husband, where the stakes are what they are, what is she capable of doing for the Queen who absolutely idolises her? Yeah, I, as I was reading about Sarah, because I've just finished the tomb, or nearly finished the tomb that is Anne Somerset's uh, biography of Queen Anne, and of course Sarah runs through the whole story. She went from being someone I thought, oh, I might like this lady. She takes no, she takes no rubbish off anyone. She is not stuck. And then as I go through and she, she is the most stubborn. I mean, she cannot see someone else's point of view. Um, and that doesn't matter who you are, whether you're a husband, the queen, the prime minister, if you don't agree with her, you are wrong. And she will tell you, you are wrong. She must've been incredibly difficult. Um, person to be around um but I can't help but kind of admire that I don't care what you think I'm going to say it anyway attitude but I don't think she's someone I would have liked to have had to deal with um but there's this there's a little I can say from 300 years um a little admiration for for just that I'm not taking any of that bs from anyone um yeah, so <laughs> she is very, very interesting, that is for sure. I suppose this is where sometimes you need or want, even as a monarch, a strong character, don't you? Somebody who's very firmly knows what they want, who will not take other people's rubbish on your behalf. Um, and maybe that's what it looked like to start with. Like, so initially you think, oh, this is great. You know, she's got someone who's firm. She's decisive. She's not going to let people muck her monarch about. You know, her, she might be the monarch, but she's her friend. You know, and she's not going to have that. And you think this is great that she's got this person that she's very decisive with. But actually, as Kat said, actually, it, it looks like that maybe on the surface. But in fact, it's quite manipulative. And what maybe appears to be friendship and caring, etc., really isn't that at all. Well, Anne asked Sarah to be this way with her initially. She was like, don't just treat me, um, you know, especially when she became queen, she was very, um, uh, very concerned that suddenly she wouldn't have someone be honest with her, that everyone was going to just, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, um, and not tell her the truth. And she asked Sarah to be 
this way with her. And I think it's around that time that they make up these normal names. Mrs. Morley and Mrs. Freeman. Which, by the way, extended to their husbands as well. So it wasn't just, um, these names weren't just between the women, but that was the idea, was that she they could converse on a more even keel and Sarah could have that honesty with Anne. But I don't think Sarah ever had that much trouble being that honest. But anyway, that, that is something Anne actually asked for. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, though, that the Mrs. Morley, Mrs. Freeman um, relationships were supposed to be contained to letters and private. Um, that kind of behaviour, that set, the licence that Sarah was freely given by Anne was supposed to be contained to privy rooms and to private missives. The problem is that Sarah, on occasion, would dress down the Queen in the court, in front of people. And whatever Sarah thought she was doing and whatever she thought her role was, to undermine the monarch in public in that way and for there to be no immediate repercussions, it actually undermines the crown. To break protocol in that way diminishes the majesty of monarchy and considering that um, Anne's grandfather was beheaded, when it comes to the undermining of the estate of monarchy, that is something that you would think that she and also Sarah should be mindful of. I think the letters are, and those kind of names they make up for each other are adorable, but Sarah just doesn't know the boundaries and there should have been boundaries completely and she just oversteps them consistently I think that's the key actually when I was thinking about these names it was like as if Anne was worried they would lose this friendship but actually it could have possibly done with that that um I am now queen you are this it, it could have survived that quite easily there was no all all the the familiar names did was reinforce that already uh, superior really um, position that Sarah took over Anne as this like I said before this sort of big sister little sister type thing it just to me anyway it just seems to reinforce that um, and not do that that thing any any good I think um, I mean Anne put up with this for decades <laughs> she she I mean Sarah was vile I would say vile even at the point of um uh, Anne's husband's death she still took the opportunity to sort of have a dig I think the final straw came you you talked about her she she would do this in public she would she, she had no kind of um ability to work out what was appropriate in public anymore and I think the crunch came at a I think it was a, a service in um commemoration of the victory at Blenheim I might have that wrong it was at St Paul's Cathedral and Anne didn't wear the jewels the necklace that uh, Sarah had put out for her Sarah had loads of roles one including mistress of the robes and uh, or mistress of the wardrobe and she and Anne deemed not to wear the necklace that Sarah had put out for her and they have a little squabble um and Sarah tells her to shut up Sarah actually tells the queen at St Paul's Cathedral to shut up and I think I mean it took a long time but I think that was the final straw that broke the camel's uh, back. 
I think we, we've also discussed this in the past about royalty in the past, but I suppose some things never change. You never know who you can really trust. I suppose we, we don't have the sort of treachery of someone's going to try and kill you every waking moment <laughs> when you're the monarch now that you necessarily had in centuries gone by. But there's so much sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, when people are, you know, sycophants and people like that. And it, it must be hard, actually, for all the criticisms that people sometimes make of the royal family. It must be quite hard to never know who is really being genuine with you or you can put an awful lot of trust in somebody and then they may very well turn out to be a little bit of a snake in the grass. So I suppose, although many things about monarchy and the nature of monarchy and how monarchy is perceived, et cetera, et cetera, have changed, there's always going to be that underlying current of you are who you are and you don't know necessarily who you can trust. It's quite sad in a way. It's not a very fun way to live, I guess. I have a question here from Kathy, who's in the audience, and she just said, would you please ask Philippa the name of the book by Anne Somerset about Sarah? Thank you. Yes, it's quite simply called Queen Anne. <laughs> I think it's called Queen Anne, the Passion of Politics, actually. That's completely uh, off the top of my head. It's sat by my bed and I'm not near my bed at the moment, but it's by Anne Somerset. So um, if you look it up, Cathy, um, you should be able to find it. Um, it is rather big. I'll just warn you, warn you now, it's quite large. That's good. Lots of reading, lots of reading time. Um, yeah, I, I want to throw in, because I, I know we're going to probably talk about the film. Um, and so this, I think, might be a segue for, I, I talk about this a lot, <laughs> so I'm going to do it again. But part of what I used to do before the Panini struck was I was a costumed interpreter at various historic sites um, owned by historic royal palaces or managed by historic royal palaces rather and we were in situ for the release of the film The Favourite and Hampton Court Palace did a whole thing they had some costumes on display and the scenario that our team put out was based around this notion of court intrigue we didn't have a Queen Anne we had Abigail Masham and Sarah Churchill taking members of the public through the royal apartments, the William Mary apartments, which, of course, by that point were the Queen Anne apartments. And it's uh, getting them ready for the Queen to come. She didn't particularly like Hampton Court Palace because it was associated with her brother-in-law and they had an incredibly toxic relationship. Um, there was a lot of infighting and, and backbiting. And I think it was quite distressing for her but the the premise we set up was that she was going to come and we were setting the scene so to speak and I got to play both Sarah Churchill and Abigail Masham because I'm a, a fortunately of the age where I can slightly play younger than myself and also play older than myself and kind of get away with it um she lies I probably shouldn't have been playing Abigail Masham but I, I tried anyway um and the thing about playing Sarah Churchill and mincing around court with this golden key on a blue ribbon and being so incredibly proud of it and swinging it and showing it off, um, you get the sense, or certainly I got the sense, of a woman just desperate, aware of her capacity, but it almost felt like in, in that constant desire for control of the allegiances her husband made of the necklaces the queen wore of where her cousin was placed and how high she rose in the queen's esteem this desire to absolutely stage manage 
every single person and bit of set dressing in her lived experience and her absolute inability to cope when anything went the way she didn't want it to go. It, it feels diagnosable. It's because it's everywhere. It's, it's the smallest participle of her life that she has to have absolute control over. And if she can't, she will throw all of her toys out of the pram and behave in ways that were actively self-destructive. Like this is an intelligent woman. She must have known that by constantly not just towing the line, but overstepping it, when she sees Abigail Masham increasingly growing in the Queen's affection, she doesn't moderate her own behaviour. It's everybody else's fault. And I just think that's fascinating. And for me, she always felt in her, and she was great fun to play because I got to be an incredibly catty woman. And the things I made my Abigail Masham do when I was playing Sarah Churchill, like the amount of times I made her curtsy lower, lower, lower and hold it until I let her get up. And just, and when you're in Baroque heels, I knew what I was doing. <laughs> and we would agree at first. I'm not just, you know, torturing my colleagues, but it was just a case of really playing. On one occasion, I did make my Abigail Masham fully genuflect on the floor front first arms cruciform laying literally flat on her face because that is what she could do and there is a cruelty to it but they're also it's just exhausting it's exhausting to have to think how you can constantly get one over on somebody and keep them in their place it can't have been fun being Sarah Churchill because I I don't think anybody can exist at that high of a frequency and that's what it felt like it felt like I come on off the floor I need to sit down because just being that obnoxious for 40 minutes and I say that as somebody who is obnoxious by trade um was quite exhausting to be honest and I, I have to say I feel quite a lot of sympathy um for Sarah Churchill because I think there must be something going on um but I also feel a lot of sympathy but any, for anybody who had the misfortune <laughs> to encounter her for prolonged periods of time because just oh boy she is inveterately jealous of Abigail Masham um, from the time she appears and she is sort of she brings her in I think because she's a cousin and a sort of poor relation and she expects her to be grateful and she expects her to, she essentially thinks, this is somebody else who's going to maintain my place in the Queen's affection, because that's what a cousin does, particularly when they're grateful because I've given them this amazing place and position. I don't think that Abigail Mashon is quite the innocent, doe-eyed ingenue. I think she had a plan, and I think she saw the cracks and she exploited them. When they fall out, Sarah flounces off. She goes, she goes back to her um, home. And then she is stripped of her offices. She says that she's not going to be dismissed. That isn't happening. She won't have it. Um, but eventually she is forced to comply. And her response is to take her keys and badges of office, throw them on the floor and flounce out much like the hare. So I, I think that she and the queen had had these periods where they bickered 
and they've had these moments of conflict, but like anybody who's in a coercively controlling relationship, I think that for many, many years, Anne wasn't sure who she was without Sarah. And so no matter how poorly she was treated, she would be so terrified of making the wrong decision, politically, socially, whatever, that she would always go back for Sarah's advice. But with Abigail Masham, she has someone who's basically blowing smoke up her ass and saying, you can do this, you're the queen, which frankly is what she needed in the first place. Like Abigail Masham is definitely a snake in the grass when it comes to Sarah, but I think she's probably the thing that Anne needed more than anything else. So Anne and Sarah, they, they mu Sarah must have been aware that Anne was, I think, falling out of love with this behaviour. Maybe that's why she brings in Abigail Masham. Um, and I think she's not completely aware of how badly it's gone until those keys get taken away. And then she's like, oh, okay, whoops. But that's my interpretation of, of that e event. Um, and she, again, does not handle it well. <laughs> no, I think it's multi-layered as well, though, because this wasn't the only thing going on. It wasn't just Abigail coming in and Sarah being badly behaved. Politically, I think Anne was becoming a lot more sure of herself. So we're still fighting the wars of the Spanish, Spanish succession. I have to say, I've read the whole blinking book and I've got no idea why we got involved in these wars whatsoever. It cost a huge amount of money and a lot of men's lives. But anyway, um, Sarah wanted the war to continue as of course her husband did. This gave him purpose. It gave him influence. It gave him uh, income. It gave him everything that he wanted and desired, and by and and Sarah as well as by virtue of um, the wife of the successful, you know, head of the um, the forces, the Allied forces. Um, it made them extremely popular um, abroad. I mean, they they had the the um, the title Prince and Princess of Middleham. I'm sorry, I, <laughs> I'm totally pronouncing that wrong. Um, but that had come about as um, you know, by virtue of, of, of his success on the battlefield. So, um, so as though Anne was trying to, she, she, she got to the point where she's like, I think maybe we should, should, we should try and get peace now. We should try and, this is costing a lot of money. It's causing a lot of fraction at home. We're sending a lot of people out there. Actually, Britain's taking on the lion's share of the cost of this as well. The amount of money we were paying, um, paying to other troops, um, to like the troops from um, Germany and whatever, I can't remember who was on what side. I know we were against the French and the Spanish. But okay. um, we were paying, you know, the troops of other countries. Um, so Anne was getting less and less okay with this as time went on. Sarah was still vying for it. So so politically they, they became, um, you know, on, on opposite sides, I suppose, on, on really key issues. And the fact then that Sarah just, could not I suppose um even have a discussion about these sorts of things that's how she comes across to me anyway it's like no this is this is the truth this is it uh, and there's a there's a scene in the film and I wrote it down because um Anne says to her it's quite early on and, she, and Anne says um uh, no sorry uh Sarah says we're still at war and and Anne says but we won this is after Blenheim I think it's supposed to be and and Sarah says oh no it must continue and Anne just says Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> it's like yeah, obviously that's that's a scene from the film, but I think it went from that and sort of going, oh, oh, Sarah, oh, right, okay, 
to you know as time went on and going oh, no this is not what I this is not the way I'm seeing it actually this isn't the way I'm seeing how things are going um and Sarah did not read the room well in that way she just thought she, I think she could would continue to have this huge influence over the queen and the, what the queen thought and therefore what the queen would do as a result of that um but Abigail I suppose like you say Kat gave her an alternative viewpoint an alternative ear for her I don't know working out what she wanted to do what were her thoughts it's like that's how we do it isn't it we talk through things with friends to kind of get straight in our head what we think about things Sarah doesn't offer that to Anne Abigail does so yeah I think it's quite multi-layered yeah I mean it's when we think of, when I think about Sarah Churchill I I I don't know always how I feel about retrospective diagnosis, particularly of psychiatric conditions, um, or perhaps maybe more appropriately in the case of Sarah Churchill, personality disorders. Because to me, the way she behaves, the thing she freaks out over, it smacks of narcissistic personality disorder. She can't quite conceive of a world where the people around her aren't extensions of her own person and if they behave in ways that she wouldn't want extensions of her own person to behave it's almost like her right hand is disobeying her and so that's this sense of her kind of bodily structure which has expanded <laughs> to also incorporate the other human beings. She's like, thinks she's the Borg, that she's kind of assimilated them all. Um, that if they behave in ways that she can't understand or doesn't want to happen, it's, it's, it's a psychic wound to her. And I think that there is, I don't think it's just her being difficult. I think that she's, this a compulsion because she never put, takes her foot off the gas. Like she's just led foot straight towards, and the only, and the response is always, it's not um, cajoling. It's not, let's be nicey, nicey. It's balls to the wall. I'm going to make you feel two inches tall. Um, I'm going to emasculate you if you're male. And I'm going to basically treat you like an absolute turd if you're female. I'm going to make you feel so small. And that's her go-to. Doesn't matter who it is. Doesn't matter how they're responding to it. She has like one setting when it comes to conflict. And it's literally just bitch. <laughs> Which in some ways I, I don't mind. But I think it, if she had any light and shade or the capacity to behave in other ways, then her life might have been easier. And the last years of her life, or certainly the last years of Anne's life, might have been happier. Because I genuinely believe that it wasn't just the loss of place and position that Sarah found so difficult. I, I genuinely believe that in her own warped, twisted way, she loved Anne, but she was so toxic that she would destroy her before she would let her be her own person. And she was incapable of being anything else. And that's kind of sad, but I'm engaging in retrospective diagnosis there. And, and what people think of the value of that is, is totally their own call. But I wonder what, what you ladies think of that. 
well I don't want to forget this this bit that and you've just reminded me now we're talking obviously about Sarah and Anne's relationship but Sarah and you have said this earlier um she wasn't just badly behaved toward um even Anne even servants um she was badly behaved towards her own children her 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 relationship with her children was quite fraught um and uh well like I say I was interviewing Antonia Keeney um at Blenheim Palace last week about her and her take was um Sarah basically if you were dead because she actually lost two of her I think two of her daughters before um so she 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 outlived at least two of her own daughters but in death they became people she would say she liked and I don't know would revere a little that did not happen in life that was not the relationship while they were in life but but Sarah writes a book I think she might have written two books actually you saying about how she, she you know how she was unable really to see things from other point people's points of view to the fact to the point of writing a book that she got published and printed to hand out to friends to tell them of how badly treated she had been um so she she was putting on record um yeah there was there was no like oh well maybe I acted a bit like this and caused it no it was like I was right look how badly all these different people including my own children treated me had it printed and gave it out to her friends which apparently they find found quite amusing I think it's quite telling that the film The Favourite eradicates George from the narrative like he's he is alive at the time that most of these events are taking place um and all of the evidence points to Anne and George actually having a happy marriage, whatever that means. Um, mm-hmm. The loss of the children must have been utterly devastating. And correct me if I'm wrong, but she loses her, the last surviving child dies two years before she becomes queen. So she knows going into her monarchy that there is not going to be an heir from her body. She knows that it's going to go down, well, eventually the line of the Hanoverians. But it it doesn't seem that her and George fell out. Um, she makes him, I want to say, vice admiral, something of the Navy. It's a completely nominal position. He has no power. But... The way he's presented in history is that he's kind of a cipher. He's a bit ineffectual. Um, And in terms of the way I read it is that Sarah Churchill is this force of nature just running rampant through the court. I don't think that it necessarily affected the relationship between Anne and George, but neither of them had much political power because Sarah was taking it all to herself. So there was just... There was no escape for it. I think also it was interesting, Philip, when you were talking about how she liked people after they were dead and kind of say shades of, of Queen Victoria there, that you, when you are fully controllable in the narrative she can create of you, like you don't do that annoying thing of having your own opinions and personality when she can put you literally in a box, six feet underground, then she could be something that you, you can be something that she can cope with and and adore mm. and miss and talk with with great sorrow um but yeah they they it's it's interesting that the film i think completely ignores the presence of george but he he wasn't sent away he was certainly there um but he's just not 
Sarah's the sort of star of the star of the story, even when it comes to Queen Anne, I think. But um, yeah, what do you reckon? Yeah, well, one of the, the other things that struck me about the story as differing from the account that I've been reading and and from the chat I had with with Antonia was just it is as if Sarah was omnipresent and actually she retreated from court quite often and Anne would be begging her to come back um, because Sarah found it quite tiresome. She found Anne quite boring um, and Sarah had multiple pregnancies during this time as well. Um, and she would, they would, you know, that, that was normal. You'd retreat from court um, if you were pregnant and I don't know till when, how old the baby was, but um, you know, so this idea that Sarah was omnipresent and then Abigail was omnipresent and there was no husband, no other servants as well in the film. There's no other ladies in waiting, no other, no one else really, <laughs> unless they shouted for them or something. Um, but yeah, um, and, I, and I noticed in the film, the rabbits, I pre I'm presuming the rabbits, if anyone hasn't seen the film, Anne has 17 rabbits to represent her 17 lost children in her bedroom. Um, and um, I'm presuming that for the film was, was just supposed to be this visual reminder of this sadness that Anne um, inevitably carried with her. What I also noticed though, and I've noticed this in other tellings of Anne's story um and I know we don't want to get too much off Sarah but is that they don't tend to mention that one of her sons got to 11 years old these did not all die as babies and they did not all die um because they were born weak I think a lot of them did but her first two children two daughters died of smallpox and uh, her husband also contracted smallpox at the same time and survived it which is why he then became um I think he had lung issues and uh, following on from that and eventually succumbed to it but he he lasted you know he, he he did he survived it he recovered but obviously with these ongoing issues um and then eventually died um but yeah just it, there was a, cause quite a bit missing from the film which I think would have been um more in Anne's day-to-day -day life yeah, I mean, those those rabbits are definitely supposed to represent the lost children. The problem is that some of her pregnancies were multiples. So if we want to actually talk about all of the lost ones, there should have been, to my knowledge, 19, because I believe that there were um, some multiple pregnancies that uh, either didn't complete or whatever. They, but they, they're supposed to have been 19 children that she lost, which is just horrendous but yes Sarah Churchill did find Anne boring and I can understand why because Sarah is well educated and cosmopolitan and interested and Anne was failed in her education and she could scarcely keep up and court has always been a viper's nest I think it probably remains a viper's nest mm. it's <laughs> exhausting to have to be on display at all times um the other thing as well, you, Philippa, you mentioned that that book that she published. The other thing that she did was she she blackmailed Queen Anne, being like, well, you know, if I release the letters, it will make it look like you're having an inappropriate relationship with, with Abigail Masham. And she's threatened to release all of these letters. And, I, and everyone who thinks, everyone who had even an iota of thought would be like, um, madam, what about your letters? Because... Anything that was in a, there is some really inappropriate stuff in your letters that would 
be that would raise a number of eyebrows. So yeah, if you want to set the world on fire, you're going to burn in the flames too. Do you not realize that? Um, so that's utterly baffling. Um, and also the fact that she uh, is essentially saying you're having a sapphic desire for Abigail Masham and there's going to be commentary about it. Those same things are happening in the letters between Anne and Sarah, the same dialogue and conversation happening. So I don't know why she thinks that her letters won't be released or will be any different. Yeah, now obviously in the film, they they run with this idea and 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 have her reading out or have her um, relaying what was in one of the one of the letters about touching skin and things like that which um I don't think there is there's no actual proof that that's what was in the letters it was more the the tone the familiarity in those letters that could then be interpreted um or has since been interpreted as potentially um a sign of of a of a, a lesbian relationship but again talking to Antonia at Blenheim Palace no evidence she does not believe there was that that type of relationship between Anne and either, but in the film they've really run with it. <laughs> they, you know, not just the the um the the letters, but they 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 show them in bed together, and that Abigail somehow takes over Anne's affections from taking over her bed, um, which I I had all sorts of issues with. Not only that it's not actually in any of the evidence but also just this frivolity of if you're if you're a lesbian you, you just jump into bed with with the next woman and the next woman I found that really annoying actually about the film um that oh it can't possibly be love it's just very frivolous and it can be replaced you know within um whatever uh, just by being flattered by the next woman coming along I thought that was a bit crap and the, the whole fact that it misses out the husband it, 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 it that, that that then becomes really um significant that he's not there um that yeah anyway so yeah the, the the letters is interesting of course we don't have the letters I don't think um or not the ones that which she's particularly referring to um to know exactly why she thought they would be so incriminating with her and Abigail Anne and Abigail and not Anne and herself so I'm gonna move along a bit with a question when you were talking earlier about, I wonder what her husband felt, this poor absent husband who apparently may have existed in real life, but not, not via any form of media. Um, when we look back historically at male favorites, they are always exceedingly unpopular with other politicians, nobles, people at court, etc. So how was Sarah perceived by the other people around her? She was, um, she was quite prominent in her political views, wasn't she? So she would have antagonised people but at whatever level for that. But was she seen as somebody who was doing a kindness and was a supporting friend to the Queen? Or was she seen, frankly, as a, a massive pain in the bum who was grossly overstepping the mark at any and every given opportunity? She'd have been safe, I'm sure, up until the point that she wasn't, even if lots of people had gone to Queen Anne and said, look, you know, we don't like Sarah because she's X, Y and Z. I'm sure for the best part that Anne would have protected her. But was she exceedingly unpopular or did she have enough positive traits to maybe save her from that undercurrent of distaste? I think politically wise, obviously her husband was a big political figure they were very close to Godolphin um so it's prime minister and or not that it would have been called prime minister at the time I don't think um first order of the treasury but um 
I would describe her as a gatekeeper. You know, she 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 had she had the queen's ear. This this is typical, isn't it, in history? You know, why do you want to be groomed with a stool? It's because you get get the get the king when he's just wanted a chat while he's on the loo. <laughs> so you get to suggest things. And and you know, by the time it's Anne, it, she's mistress of the robes and whatever. And and actually, she did have that title as well but um or the, the female equivalent but it wasn't uh, quite the same job as it used to be but you know she had Anne's ear but she was a gatekeeper so she would actually they showed this in the film didn't they who would have access to Anne um you know Sarah was was good at that but I I, I do think one thing that doesn't come across because Sarah is so political or known to be so political is that Anne um, I wouldn't say she was a political she wasn't a political person in that like Kat said before she really didn't she was really concerned about this party politics beginning which did begin in in um, sort of the end of William and William's reign into Anne's reign because uh, we can see it today can't we or if you're on this side of the house you think this this and this and this about totally unrelated topics and if you're on this side of the house you think the opposite to what the other side has just purely on the basis that you've identified with this party or that party and Anne just yeah she didn't like this idea and actually um in her in her in her parliament it kind of um over time people went from being mainly independent I mean can you imagine that now a house of commons where everyone was independent and it was just odd for an occasional alliance they went from that to everyone being aligned with one side or the other um and um but yes, but Anne, um, I just want to make this point about Anne because um, it, it seems to go by the wayside, like I say, when we're talking about Sarah being so political. I think she is, um, the, she, out of all of our monarchs, she attended the most number of council meetings. She was very interested. She was hands-on. Um, but she, you know, so it's not, I think the film again portrays her as sort of just sitting around in her bedroom in her um in her nightdress with a bad leg all the time she did have a bad leg but um she also did have very bad eyesight uh and then only coming only sort of being wheeled out to make speeches in in parliament but it was i don't think it can have been the case because she was far more hands-on than that but i don't know kat do you have anything to add about about that or anything else <laughs> yeah i mean she 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 definitely is far more in reality she's far more involved in the politics of the day than the film shows she's watching listening trying to learn and understand um and one of the big causes of conflict between her and sarah is that sarah is as the political parties form the whigs are the more kind of radical side of it and they had supported the continuation of the Royal Spanish Succession. And so, unsurprisingly, Sarah likes the Whigs. I think she likes the fact that they are a little bit more um, forward-thinking, arguably. I mean, I'm not going to get into a discussion of Whig-Tory policies, who does what, because it makes my eyes want to bleed. I don't really... Um, <laughs> it's it's You cannot pass it down to a, a five minute soundbite. It's incredibly complicated and doesn't always make a hell of a lot of sense considering how politics and political agendas now function. They, they are quite different in their bent if you look at wigs and toys, but very basic. Sarah's a wig. 
and increasingly Anne is becoming suspicious. Well, she's suspicious of the past political, political system regardless, but she's especially suspicious of the Whigs because they're so, let's move the times before thinking. She's like, oh, I've met people who want to change the system before and it ended up with my granddad having his head cut off. So I am not a fan <laughs> of that. Um, so that's going to create division. She She wants to ensure that what is her royal prerogative remains. She doesn't want to cede it all to Parliament um, and certainly not to the Whig party. So she's perhaps more naturally a Tory of the day. And that is, it is different to the Tories of today. They are different <laughs> in many ways. And I'm not going to go into it because as I said, it's incredibly complicated. Um, but yeah, I think Sarah... She, it's not just the fact that she wants people to dress the way she wants and speak the way she wants. She wants them to think the way she wants and have allegiances the way she wants them. And so therefore anybody who's not a Whig is stupid. And I think the film, The Favourites, while Anne does attend all of these meetings, and I think she does do her best to understand, I do wonder whether she is fully able to grasp all of the complexities of any potential decision that might be made going forward. Not that she is stupid, but she just doesn't have the kind of education in diplomacy and politics and all of the rest of it that her politicians have, that Sarah has. So I, I do wonder how effective, like turning up doesn't mean you know what you're doing. And she, she definitely turns up. She's definitely trying. How effective is she? Mm, I don't know, because ultimately it does feel like Sarah slash the politicians kind of push through what they, they want. Mm. It feels like she was learning on the job wasn't it? So she's going to all these meetings because she's probably quite aware that she has, <laughs> she, she needs to get up to speed. And it, yeah, you've, you've said before, her education was, was very, very poor for, for having been identified as well as you know, quite high up in the line of succession. Um, and, and they, they cared about whether they, whether the girls, uh, her and Mary were brought up as Catholic or well, obviously they weren't, they had to be church of England. Um, anyway, we won't even go into the glorious revolution of the fact there was still a legitimate line in Europe at this time when the Hanoverians were, were chosen to, to come to the throne. Um, uh, but yeah, she seems very aware that there's a lot she didn't know and she's trying to put it into context and learning on the job. And it's, it's too much really isn't it so she kind of this is why I think she changes her mind about the and this is only my take but I think this is why she changes her mind about the the Spanish wars of succession we get so far into them years I, I sorry I don't know how long I, I've got a horrible feeling it's like 30 years but I could have that totally wrong please google it <laughs> um so and, and, and as we go and then she and so she's got long enough to start making up her own mind and assessing the situation for herself and listening to other people as well as time goes on and realizing that um yeah what what she possibly could have realized a little bit earlier on but was more um listening to other you know she, she was listening to other people and, and more taken with their opinion than having one of her own maybe and what really confuses me is why when Anne is now next in line to the throne, she hasn't 
she doesn't have more to do with court um more to, and, and 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 is sort of educated as as a adult really but you know there just doesn't seem to be I don't know I don't know whether it was just assumed she wouldn't really be that involved it's I don't know Kat what do you think yeah I mean it's a it's a tough one um because I'm trying to think to the other Stuart women or for that matter the Stuart men um because it's it doesn't feel like Charles I was particularly well-educated mm-hmm. um, in terms of diplomacy <laughs> or, you, or the things that keep your... Could be the understatement of the century. <laughs> yeah. centuries. I mean, I, f- I feel like something went wrong in his education. I, Charles II is not known for being a polymath. Um, neither is James II, but it is that famously notorious thing that they just don't educate their women. But I, I'm not quite sure if any of them really privilege education all that much. Um, and actually, when we when we look at the at the Georgians, the the most in many cases the most educated people in the Georgian royal courts are the wives that are imported in. They're, they're the real smart cookies. I mean, so, uh, excluding, of course, Sophia of Hanover, the matriarch of the dynasty, who is brilliant. So it's it's almost like it flips. So you have in the Tudor period where this humanist education is really privileged for both boys and girls. They are educated differently, but incredibly well. Languages, et cetera, et cetera. Um, philosophy, all of the things that make you a ruler who can weigh political decisions and diplomatic reasoning and all that kind of thing. And then in the Stuart period, there is still education, but it feels like there are holes, big holes. Um, And then you get the Georgians and there are these just incredible women. And that's not to say the men are stupid, but the way I read it is that the women far outstrip their husbands and sons in terms of their educational level, their desire and passion for lifelong learning. That's a real characteristic of people like Caroline of Ansbach, um, Sophia of Hanover, et cetera, et cetera. These incredibly brilliant women married to increasingly (laughs) um, just dissolute, (laughs) lazy men. (laughs) There seems to be a distraction though, doesn't there? So the Tudor period... Obviously, we begin, we're getting a little bit off topic, so I'll just make this point very quickly. Um, but the, the with, with religion, religious reform. And so it's like the, the important thing is that they're brought up in the correct religion um, by the time we get to the, to the Stuarts. And then it's like they've forgotten at all about education by the time we get to the Hanoverians. I don't know. That's just, um, but that's how I, I read that. The, the education bit that's what I took from it, it was like they were just distracted um, well or or put focus on religion above anything else and that you know that caused a lot of fraction but anyway that is a topic for another night I am sure okay I am conscious of the time now because we have come up to our hour thank you so much for coming down and sharing part of your afternoon stroke evening with us bye-bye for now thanks everyone bye. thanks everybody bye
thank you for joining us today we hope you've enjoyed this episode this has been the history after dark podcast with philippa lacey brewell dr kat marchant and Catherine brooks you can catch us for history after dark live on instagram most wednesday evenings at 8 15 p.m make sure you're following us all on instagram to get notified when we are going live you can find our instagram handles and details of where else you can find us in the show notes